Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Seeking Truth, a podcast dedicated to seeking and defending biblical truth among a myriad of topics. I'm your host, Colin. And I'm Julian. And together we are the Gospel Truth Society. Even though there's only two of us. Yes, there's only two of us, but we are a society. Uh, We're going to jump right in here, uh, and Julian's going to take us away off the start here. Yeah, so so our topic today is uh, biblical gospel, the gospel of God. Um, And we just want to talk a little bit before we get into that topic. So why do we want to start with the gospel? So the first reason that we thought it was important to start with the gospel is... It's in our name. Um, If we are going to start something based upon the gospel truth, then we need to start by saying what we mean when we say the gospel. Uh When we talk about that gospel truth, what are we founding our entire podcast and ministry platform on? Um, And so that was the first major reason that we decided our first series should be about the gospel. And so... Yeah, I'm going to walk us through a few points now from Scripture that tells us why the gospel is so important. And the first one that I've highlighted is in Romans 1, 16 through 17. Uh, It tells us that the power of God for salvation is the gospel. Uh, The second point that I wanted to highlight was that in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 3, we see that the gospel is of first importance, and Paul tells us that. And then thirdly, um, the gospel is the cornerstone of the Christian faith that is built upon the foundation of God's word. So this gospel is very important to grow in our faith because through that gospel we are saved. Mm. So with that being said, we're going to dive in to what we mean by the gospel. And first, to see what we mean by the gospel, we need to define the word gospel. So I'm going to walk us through Four different understandings, okay? So the first understanding of the word gospel is a general good message. Mm. Um, So this is any general tiding of good news. The word gospel literally translates to mean good message. And it comes from the Greek word euangelion. So the the root of eu, it means good. And the angelion is the same root for the word that we get from angel. So... Right. And that doesn't mean it's going to say good angel. Right. No. Right. So the primary purpose of angels in Scripture were to be messengers for God. Ministering spirits. Yes. They're ministering spirits and they're messengers for God. Mm. So that's where we get that good message from is euangelion. And I just think Gabriel delivers the message of Christ's birth to Joseph and Mary. Right. Mm. Um, He delivers... Uh, the message of John the Baptist to uh, Zacharias, and then he mutes him because he doesn't believe. But that's a whole different story for another time. So the best way that I have heard this understanding of the word gospel explained uh, is by R.C. Sproul, and he points out to us that in ancient times, uh, the news of victory on the battlefield would be brought to a city or a kingdom by a messenger. And that declaration of victory would be a good message. That's the general meaning for gospel. So the messengers would run for miles to deliver the gospel of victory, the good news of victory to their land. And that was the good news to the people. That was the gospel to them. Right. And, and you know, we see also in Romans ten fifteen, uh, scripture talks about this delivery of the good news. And in particular, it's talking about the delivery of the good news of Christ. And so... What it literally says there is 
blessed are the feet of those who deliver the good news. Um, and so this this word gospel, this good news, is highly uh, revered and um, highly upheld in these ancient cultures. And so yes, yes, and. After that, the next understanding we have of the word gospel is a literary genre. Mm. And we see that in the Bible. We have the gospels of the New Testament, the gospels of Jesus Christ, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most people in the church, or at least in the Bible Belt, uh, know what the gospels are. And that is the books about Jesus' life in the Bible. So we have Matthew, which is more of a Jewish gospel. Uh, we have Mark, which is a very short and action-packed gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Luke, which is known as a gospel of the disadvantaged. Like From that. a background of being a doctor and a physician and all these sorts of things. Yes. And so. so we see Jesus Christ act as the good physician in Luke right. very uh, definitively. Next, we have John. And John is kind of in a category of its own. Uh, the <laughs> previous three are known as the synoptic gospels. Right. And then John is just by itself in that little subcategory of not being a synoptic gospel. And right. so the one, one way that I've heard it put, and my professor put it like this to me in Intro to New Testament at Carson Newman, he said, John is a gospel in which an infant could swim, but an elephant could drown. So it's very practical, but it's very rich in deep theology. So if you tried to understand every little little tad bit of theology that was in John, it would be very hard. Good thing we're not elephants, right? Amen. Um, <laughs> so the four Gospels, the literary genre, are about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the next category that we see in Gospel is the declared gospel of the kingdom, which we see throughout the New Testament. So, um, the kingdom of God is a present reality with future implications. So, how do we see the kingdom active in the world today? Right, and so the kingdom of God, as Julian said, is is this good news of God's kingdom. Um, it's both present day and throughout the future into eternity. It has existed for all time. Um, currently exists and will exist and persevere. Ironically enough, where we find out that this is one of the gospels and where we find this good news is in one of the one of the gospels. Um, in Matthew three two, John the Baptist tells us that the kingdom of God is at hand, um, and he was talking about the arrival of Christ. Um, and we also see Christ call himself the kingdom in Matthew four seventeen. Um, and we're going to cover that a little bit more in just a second. But John was talking about the literal and legitimate kingdom that was made available through Jesus Christ as well. Um, and it's a present reality with future implications. Mm-hmm. So what are those future implications of the kingdom of God? Right. And so first, let's let's go back to that question of how do we see the kingdom in the world today? Mm-hmm. Um, so we see it through the sovereign rule of the Trinity. Uh, in James 4.15, we see that God is actively directing our lives when it says, if he wills, we will do this, or if God wills, we will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also see it in Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6.10. Um, he prays God's that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that was a very present reality mm-hmm. prayer, and that is kind of the model prayer for us as the disciples ask Jesus, uh, Jesus, how do we pray? And he says, pray, pray then like this. Um, and so we see it as this very present reality that we pray for today. Um, and the most, 
I would say, visual example that we can actively see with our own eyes is the church. Uh, as believers, we share in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 tells us that. And Christ, as we heard in Matthew, is the kingdom of God. And so we can now know that we make up the kingdom of God even here. The thing about this is, we don't capture the fullness of the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And so we see that we are a present reality of the kingdom of God. The only issue with that is we don't see it fully. Um, And so you ask, what are the future implications of the kingdom of God? When we look at these future implications, as Christians, we gain a lot of great comfort. The first thing that we see is we will be made priests to God uh, to reign with Jesus Christ. Um, We see that in Revelation 1-6, and we will live on in eternity with him in all of his love, majesty, grace, justice, mercy. We could go over all of the things that we are going to experience in Jesus Christ, um, and we may do a future episode about that, but in the interest of time, uh, we'll move on from that a little bit. We see that there won't be suffering or sin. There will just be the glory and honor of God. Amen. We will all be gathered there, belonging to his kingdom. So yeah, the uh, next understanding of the word gospel that we have, and which is the main definition that we're going to stick with when we mean gospel is the gospel of God as coined in Romans 1, 1 through 6. This is also the gospel of Jesus Christ himself, the gospel of his finished work. I'm going to read Romans 1, 1 through 6 really quickly to give us that coined term, gospel of God. It says this, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also called, of Jesus Christ. This is what the most commonly understood term of the gospel is. And that's how we understand it in the church usually is this gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel of God. And this is the good news. It's not just one to be thrown in with the others, right? Hmm. But it's meant to stand out as the greatest news of all time. This is the greatest message that there is. Right. All of the others were a definition, but this is the definition of the gospel, the gospel, not a gospel. Yes, this is the gospel. So that's what we want to talk about. That's what we're defending as the uh, Gospel Truth Society. We're just going to give a quick summarization of the gospel Mm. by uh, David Platt here to help us understand. Uh, He has a great resource to walk through the gospel, what it requires of us as people. We'll Um, eventually have him as a guest. Don't worry. Nice try. (laughs) Um, But anyway, this is what he says. He says, The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection so that all who turn and trust in him will be 
reconciled to God forever. Mm. That is such an amazing way to just summarize the gospel in what, a paragraph, if that, a sentence? Yeah, that's, that's almost a one big run-on sentence. You know, David Platt is deep in theology, but uh, shallow in English lessons. Uh, <laughs> hey, you better watch it. He'll please, wreck you. Please, please don't listen to that part, David Platt. Um, very sorry. Yeah, so that is an incredibly beautiful summary of the gospel. I mean, he looked upon hopelessly sinful people. Not just sinful people, but we are hopelessly sinful. And so... I'm so glad that God has blessed us with men like David Platt to summarize that and, you know, God using him in that way. Hey, you talking about us being hopelessly sinful? Right. The Bible says we're children of wrath, so amen to that. And we're hopelessly (laughs) theological as well, you know. Um, (laughs) But, and even just just to take it, I I would say further, but I'm shortening even more. So a very brief one phrase summarization of the gospel is that Jesus saves sinners. Right. And that's the amazing truth of the gospel. Right. And we see it time and time again through scripture. Amen. With that in mind, this definition of the gospel of God being our main focus of the gospel. um, What's your favorite summary of the gospel in scripture? So, like I said, throughout scripture, we see time and time again, the summary of the gospel. We see it, you know, everywhere. We see it in the Old Testament, New Testament alike. Um, But I would say my favorite is Romans 5, 6 through 11, and I'll read that really quick. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's that hopelessly sinful idea. We were not even good people. Um, And so since, therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Um, And so... There it is. It's the entire gospel, everything summed up, past, present, and future. Um, And that's the glory of it and the beauty of it. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And and we have that assurance in it, and it gives us that security. And so that's my favorite summary of the gospel and scripture. And I know you have yours. So what is your favorite summary? Yeah, so I mentioned it in the introduction because it's also my favorite section of scripture. But... I'm going to read it again. It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Mm. Uh, and it says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. And here's the good part. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And I just love this section of scripture so much, this summarization of the gospel, because it shows us who we were. It shows us what Christ has done for us, what God is doing for us, what he's doing in us. And it's showing us that promise of future glory. So it shows us that we were children of wrath, that we were sons of disobedience, that we served the prince of the power of the air. And then God, seeing us in our state of wrath, he had grace towards us. He was rich in mercy for us, and he loved us. So he made us alive together with Christ, and he's going to seat us in the heavenly places so that we can experience that, that rich grace forever and so that we can see the glory of God forever. Mm. That just points to just the, <laughs> the justification, the sanctification, and the glorification of needlessly hopeless sinners Amen. who find their way back to Christ. Or, well, Christ draws them back. It, it is a dragging of us back to him, and so... That is just wonderful. And so with those summarized... We're going to move now into the meat of the lesson. (laughs) So uh, first we're going to talk about uh, the key aspects of the biblical story to understand the gospel. Then we're going to move along a little bit and talk about the key elements of the gospel. And then to finish up, we're going to talk about how we should respond to the gospel. So now... Let's get to the key aspects of the biblical under the biblical story, excuse me, to understand the gospel. So right. the first point in that is the creation story. We need to understand how the creation story uh, affects the gospel. So with that in mind, um, take us away. Yeah, so the reason we want to cover the key aspects of the biblical story first is because to understand the theological implications of it, you have to first understand the events within it. It's the same with even today uh, as detectives seek to identify a criminal and get motives and stuff. They first have to understand the event, the crime and the scene itself. And so that's what we want to set up here. Um, So it all begins in Genesis one with the great words in the beginning God. In the beginning, God. And so we see in the first four words of the Bible that it is through God and it is the initiation of God that kicks everything off. And that really just sets the theme for all of Scripture. Um, As time and time again, we see that it is God who works salvation. It is God who works events and all these things. Um, And so that's where it starts. And throughout Genesis, he creates water. He gives the earth form. He creates the heavens and the earth. He brings light itself into existence. He speaks it into existence. He creates the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the animals of the land and all these different things. Um, He speaks them into existence. And it's important to know that part because when we get to man, Scripture takes a little bit different route. Instead of speaking man into existence, he gets down and with his hands actively molds man out of dirt. And not only does he mold him out of dirt into some 
creature that he has thought up, but instead he makes man in his image. And that's so, so important because even as human beings, we have the imprintation of God upon us. Christian or unchristian, there are things about you that resemble God himself. And so that is insanely important. And then God even takes it a step further with man. He actively breathed life into him. And so I like to think of it kind of like divine CPR. God brought man into existence with his breath. And that's where we really start. God gave Adam everything. He gave him his breath. And then he gave him Eve. He gave him all of creation. He gave both of them, every tree in the garden, except one. And really, when we look at that, the only reason God didn't give it to them, because that was what was good for them. Everything else, it was good to give them. But the only good thing about this tree was to keep it from them. Because he knew that we could not handle the responsibility of choosing between right and wrong. And so... Adam and Eve had daily communion with God. They walked with him in the garden, and God loved them so deeply. And it was only that one thing that they were lacked, that they lacked, that they were told not to eat from, because it would ultimately cause death. And so that is where the fall comes into play. And so, Julian, what is the fall? Um, yeah, so before I get into the fall, I want to talk about why it's important for us to understand first that we are in subjection to God's law. And that, like you said, we were made in his image, right? Right. He made us. He created us. Right. So it's important for us to understand that because as creator, we are in subjection to him. Right. So as a creation, we are subject to the creator. And Paul even points that out in Romans 9, 21. Uh, he says, or does not the potter have a right over the clay? Mm. So we see here that God, the potter of humanity, the creator of humanity, has right over the creation. We are under his authority. And he gave us that law, that one law, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. So instead of obeying that law, Man chose to disobey God's law. So when I say man, I don't just mean Adam. I mean humanity, right? Right. So uh, Eve ultimately was the one who took the first bite of the apple, but both were responsible for what happened because they both broke the law of God, right? So they sinned in the eyes of God. Man wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. It says it in Genesis uh, 3. The difference between us and God is that he is omniscient meaning he knows all things. Man is not omniscient. Therefore, the only way humanity could know evil was to experience evil. Mm. Mankind could know evil by participating in it. Therefore, mankind became unrighteous. This unrighteousness resulted in us being separated from the presence of God. He kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Now we deserve the just wrath of God. Humanity was no longer righteous in the sight of God, and we needed a deliverer. Now, the fact right. that we needed a deliverer moves us on to the third aspect of the biblical story that we need to understand in the gospel, and that is the promised Messiah. Mm. This Messiah would be the deliverer of humanity from sin and to the righteousness of God. And that person is no other than Jesus Christ. 
So there is foreshadowing of the promised Christ in Genesis 3. And that's where we see the fall of humanity. And we see that in verse 15 when God says that the seed of evil crushed the head of the serpent. That's referring to Christ. Christ will crush that serpent. So there are many Old Testament prophecies giving the details of Christ. Uh, just to name a few. The first one is he will be born of a virgin. That's in Isaiah 7, 14. We see that with Mary, right? He was born of Mary. Uh, the second is he will be the son of God. We see that in Psalm 2, 7. Uh, the third is he will be the seed of Abraham. We see that in Genesis 21, 12. Uh, the fourth is he will be of the house of David. We see that in Jeremiah 23, 5. Uh, the fifth uh, prophecy is that he will be born in Bethlehem. We see that in Micah 5, 2. Uh, the sixth is that he shall be a prophet. We see that in Deuteronomy 18, 18. Uh, the seventh is he shall be a priest. We see that in Psalm 110, 4. The eighth is he shall be a king. We see that in Psalm 2, 6. And I can go on and on. Jesus, in his life, fulfilled all of these Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And that gives us evidence to the Christship of this Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus was the promised deliverer. He fulfilled the law on our behalf, securing righteousness for those who have faith in him. Mm. If all Jesus had to do was die for us, he could have just died, right? So I love how R.C. Sproul puts it. Um, he said, Jesus could have parachuted out of heaven, landed at the cross, died, and it would have been done. But no, that's not all he had to do. He had to secure righteousness for us. If if we're just forgiven, we're still not righteous. And you have to be righteous. You have to be righteous. You have to be perfect mm. to enter into heaven. So Christ secured righteousness for us in his perfect obedience in his life. And he also paid for the sins of humanity on the cross. That is how we see the promised Messiah. That's probably one of the most important parts of the biblical story to understand the gospel, if not the most important point. So, uh, the next part, we talked about the kingdom a little bit. Uh, the fourth aspect of the biblical story that we want to talk about concerning the gospel is the present kingdom. So, I like how Stephen Lawson put it a few weeks ago. Uh, he said, salvation was the seal by the Father in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. The resurrection is not what saves us, but it was the seal of our salvation, the approval stamp of God. The approval on the crucifixion. Yes, the approval on the crucifixion. His, his death was pleasing to God, and, and, and we see that in the resurrection and the glorification yes, of Christ. Exactly. So now, Jesus reigns as Lord over all things, and to enter his kingdom, one must be born again. So to be part of the church of Jesus Christ is to be in his kingdom, to be a part of his kingdom. So, uh, the kingdom will be fully realized on that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we see that mentioned in Philippians 2, 10, and 11, and Romans 14, 6. So the fifth aspect of the biblical story concerning the gospel is the promise of future glory, and Colin's going to talk about that a little bit. Right, so with the present kingdom, uh, as we talked about earlier, not only is the kingdom present um, in the present day, you like that? Uh, but it goes on into eternity. It has existed for all of eternity past. It exists in eternity present and will exist in eternity future. We see that and we see this promise of future glory. Now, what does that mean for Christians? Um, well, obviously, it's a huge part of the gospel. Uh, it's a huge part of the Christian life and faith because eternity, that future dwelling with Christ, 
that redemption of Christ is what we build our entire lives on. It's what our hope settles on. Something cool about this that, that I always get caught up in, it was all set up before the beginning of time. Everything was already in motion before the first rock was laid upon the face of the earth. And we see some of that also throughout the Old Testament. So we see that it's set up in eternity past. Uh, but I really want to hammer in on how it was set up in the Old Testament as well. Uh, in Isaiah 35, it talks about the return of God's redeemed. Uh, they're coming to Zion to dwell with him. Um, and then again, we see it in Romans 8, 16 and 17. And I want to take a second to read that because it's such great encouragement. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. And I would love to do a whole episode on Romans 8. And we may in the future, uh, but that'll have to do for now. So God himself, in, the, in this promise of future glory, bears witness to himself that we are his. And mm -hmm. so we see the Trinity working in this way, the Holy Spirit uh, identifying with us to the Father through the Son. And it shows that we are his. Um, and if we are his, then we are his children. And if we're his children, then we're fellow heirs to share in glorification with Christ. Now mm -hmm. keep in mind... This is a future glory that we have not yet taken hold of. And Paul mentions that uh, in his epistles. It's still completely true and secure in Christ. Don't get that wrong. Uh, but we haven't gotten there just yet. And that's because we are still in the process of sanctification, making us like Christ, sharing in these sufferings. And that's what this promise of future glory is meant to do. And Paul mentions it here in Romans 8, provided we suffer with him. And why do we suffer? in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so this promise of future glory is really just to give us the grit to get through this life so that we may be glorified with Christ. Amen. And so we have this promise secured by God's own spirit and his word. Um, and I want to take that and give a small glimpse into the future glory from Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And it says... And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so we see God's going to dwell with us. He's going to wipe away our tears and rid existence of all evil and wrongdoing. The former shall pass away, and in this glory, we won't stray or sin. Instead, we will finally be able to fulfill the greatest commandment of all time, and that is to love God with all of our soul, heart, mind, and strength. Amen. And so, with this promise of future glory, death is not the end for us, but instead is the deliverance to this final glory. With that, we move on and... We look at the key elements of the gospel, and to get this, we get it from David Platt, and, and yeah. Julian can say this much better than me, and so we have the key elements, which are? Which are uh, the character of God, uh, the sinfulness of man, uh, the sufficiency of Christ, 
uh, the necessity of faith and the urgency of eternity. So what we're going to do here is we're not necessarily going to take word from word from David Platt, but we're just going to take those <laughs> those points, that outline that he gives us, and just talk through them. So the first point is the character of God. Uh, so will you talk a little bit about that, Colin? Yeah, so when thinking through the gospel, um, I came to the conclusion that there are six main characteristics uh, for us to understand it um, on the base level. And I'm not saying that this is the complete depths of God's characteristics in the gospel, but for a basis of the gospel understanding to be laid, uh, these are the six that I think you need to understand. And I'm just going to briefly explain each one. First and foremost, you have the holiness of God. If something or someone is holy, they are set apart, they are completely perfect in moral understanding and deed, and they are completely good and righteous, completely worthy, and completely exalted. Um, and so God fits this bill to the T. God is holy, Yeah. set apart. Yeah, and we even see in Scripture uh, this is the only attribute of God that is exalted to the superlative degree. And what I mean when I say that is, in the Old Testament in Isaiah, we see the uh, angels referring to God as holy, holy, holy. And in Hebrew, when you repeat a word, that just increases how important it is, how vital. So when they say holy, 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 what they're really saying is God is holy, he is holier, and he is holiest. To the highest degree. Yes. Yeah. And so that's number one. Number two is God's grace. God's grace is his giving us mercy freely because he desires for us to have it, not because we deserve it. It's unmerited favor. And so that's God's grace. Number three is God's righteousness. God being completely and perfectly righteous means that he is morally perfect, re-emphasizing that idea that he is holy. All of his judgments are completely perfect. He always chooses what is good and can never choose evil or reward evil. Then we move on and we have God's love. Uh, God is complete and perfect love, never stained by evil or selfishness or sin. So God loves what is right and he hates what is evil. He loves the glory of his name as he is the only one who understands his holiness completely and he has love for you and me a great and pure love for us. And so fifth, God is just. He always gives what is deserved and nothing goes unpunished. Amen. Evil doesn't get a free pass. No matter what we think or no matter what we see in our world today, evil is not just going to get off the hook. He always and always will do what is fair and good. And so we move on to the sixth one, and I save this for last uh, because it's typically one of the toughest ones for people to understand and for people to really accept if we're being honest. It's a very serious one, and we, but we can't dismiss it. That is the wrath of God. God's wrath is very, very real. If you take one look at Scripture and you start flipping through the pages, you find out that the Bible is a very real, a very dangerous and at times, a very scary book. It doesn't sugarcoat things. And if it had a rating, it would not be PG. Like, the Bible would be rated R for violence. Um, it's very real. It's much like life. It's a living and active book. And so we can't expect it to sugarcoat things. God's wrath is the same way. And it's one of the reasons for the cross entirely. Um, and I love this quote 
especially when we think about God's wrath with all of his other characteristics, C.S. Lewis, we all love him, um, and we love these movies. We love the Chronicles of Narnia. And he says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And that perfectly describes, I think, the wrath of God. God's wrath is the outpouring of his power and righteous anger in the punishment of sin and evil. He, Of course he isn't safe. If he was safe, he would never punish evil. And that means that he wouldn't be loving. It means he wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be just. That brings us to the final point that I think we have to look at with the characteristics of God. And we have to understand that they don't cancel each other out. They drive each other. Love and righteousness drive justice. His love and justice drive grace. His holiness and righteousness drive his wrath. So on and so forth. We could go on and on all day. But they all exist perfectly and never cancel each other out. These six, I believe, are key to understanding the gospel. And we could go even deeper. But this is a really good basis to transfer into the sinfulness of man. Yes, and before I move on to the sinfulness of man, I just want to add on a little bit to what he was saying. Uh, God never displays one of his characteristics at the expense of another. That's just a great way to put that. Right. So, the sinfulness of man. What is it that plagues us? It's sin, right? right. A sinful nature. A sin nature. All men are sinners. We see that in Romans 3.23, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'll, here's a great quote from R.C. Sproul that I love. It's very simple. and kind of seems very like too simplistic, but it gets the point across. It says we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. sinners. So we're not sinners as a result of what we've done necessarily, but we do what we do because of who we are at our core. We have a sin nature, and that sin nature was inherited from Adam. We inherit a sin nature the moment we are born, right? Because of Adam's disobedience, we inherit that sin nature because he was our federal head. A great way to see this and to understand this uh, is from a Shy Lin song that I heard. Um, when <laughs> it's talking about team lyrical theology, lyrical theology. Well, it's one of those albums. Um, either the first one or the second one. I can't remember. But he says, imagine this. When you're on a team, you're not the only one penalized. The whole team is. Adam, the first human, as a result of his sin, we have inherited that penalty for sin. We have inherited that sin nature. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, 36 through 38, uh, that the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You even referenced that verse a little bit earlier. And I just want to show us like how sinful we are from when we come out of the womb. And that's not something that we do when we come out of the womb, right? We're not perfectly loving God as we should. We're not loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, we immediately break God's greatest commandment. Right. Even in that, you know, we still we see all this sin, but if you had to summarize sin as one defining thing, what would you say sin is? So, okay, a definition of sin, and this is a very uh, widely accepted definition of sin, is missing the mark. But it's not just simply like I'm shooting a bow and I'm missing the target. It's I'm aiming for righteousness and completely missing it. I'm not even hitting like the stone of the Ten Commandments. I'm completely going the opposite way. I'm doing what is wrong so badly because it's at my core, 
right? So sin is missing the mark, and the mark that we miss is the holy righteousness of God. We disobey his perfect law. We tend to think it's just small mistakes. How, how bad do we really have it? So, um, sin would be a small occurrence if it was against a small God. Sin is a big deal because of who it is against. Sin is no small occurrence because God is not small. The righteous creator is the one who we sin against. This God who is holy, 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 who is perfect, who is greater than the universe, who is greater than the cosmos, right? So if we think that sin is a small occurrence, we most likely have a small view of God. And we need to strive to know who he is more, to know those characteristics in greater depth if we want to understand the weight of our sin. Our sin is great against a great God. It's a great offense. So, like I was saying, maybe it would be small if it was against a small being, but God is the greatest being in all of creation, right? Creation is in subjection to him. Sin is cosmic treason against holy God. Right. Sin is not merely a mistake, but it's a wicked decision. We choose the ways of unrighteousness over obedience to God. And because that unrighteousness is evil, we must suffer for our sin and death. And that Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Right. And, and that really shows us a God who is completely moral, morally perfect, completely good, and completely just. If he sees sin and he understands that the punishment has to be death, that really shows us that Man really is as bad as Scripture tells us. That we are not as good as society leads us to believe. Mm -hmm. We are just as bad as Scripture defines us as. Yeah, and the reason most people see themselves as basically good is because they're comparing themselves to other people. Mm. Right? As people, like as the creation of God, I should say, we should be comparing ourselves to that holy standard of God of his righteousness, but instead we look at other people, we say, well, I'm not that bad, I'm trying to live a good life, so we say we're good, and that's just not a biblical idea, uh, that concept that man is basically good uh, results from the enlightenment idea of faith in humanity, and this is idea is nowhere to be found in scripture, Proverbs 14.12 actually tells us there's a way which seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of death, so there we see that we may think we're good, but we're going in the way of death. It's like a starving man looking at two rotten apples, and one is slightly less rotten than the other, and he says, that's a good apple, because he's starving. But then you take a man who is completely well-fed, and he's looking at both those apples, and he says, throw them in the garbage, they're rotten. Yeah, amen. Yeah, so in the Bible teaches us that none is righteous, and that no one does what is good. And we see that in Romans three ten through 20. So none, none are good. None do what is right in the eyes of God. No one seeks to do what is right in the eyes of God. And so where does that leave us? Yes. Especially in the gospel story, where does that, that leave us? That leaves us hopeless. We need a deliverer. Right. That's what we need because we cannot achieve this righteousness that the law demands by ourselves. Mm. So that takes us into the third point, the sufficiency of... Of Christ. So explain the sufficiency of Christ in relation to the sinfulness of man. Right. So 
Man is completely separated from God, and time after time, Scripture tells us we cannot bring ourselves back to God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, in case you haven't noticed, dead people don't do a lot. Like, you don't, you don't see them going to the grocery store. Scripture does not mean that we were just kind of asleep to God or that we were kind of drowsy but could still kind of move towards Him. Uh, no, we were completely dead to God doing nothing to go towards him. However, Ephesians 2 also tells us that salvation is completely a gift of grace, not works, so we can't boast in our own doing. It's all in Christ's work that saves us, Mm -hmm. um, and it's completely sufficient to do so. The thing is, we aren't sufficient to do any of it. We have to first cover what made Christ sufficient. What gave him the ability to suffer and take on the entire righteous punishment of God? And it's because he was 100% God and 100% man. This is a staple of the gospel. He had to be 100% man to identify with us so that he could represent us to God. And he had to be 100% God to sustain a perfect life and endure the complete justice and wrath of the Father. Colossians 2, 9 me and John 1 both tell us that Jesus Christ is truly God and that the deity of God rests on him. And so this is what qualifies Jesus to be sufficient and to offer forgiveness and to substitute himself for us. Amen. Really quick, as we move through this, I want to point to passages that highlight the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, first is Isaiah 53, 6. All transgression and iniquity was laid upon Christ, every bit of it. Romans 5, 12 through 17 shows that through one man, Adam, death was brought to many. But greater than that, through one man, Christ, grace and forgiveness abounds. Colossians 2, 10 says we are complete in him. Hebrews 10, 12 tells us, But when Christ has, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. So Christ was sufficient to be a single sacrifice for all sin. No more was needed. Not another a couple years later. He was pleasing enough to God that he didn't need anything else. And then finally in John 14, 6, Scripture tells us that Christ is the only way to God. He's the only sufficient one. And as you said earlier, all have fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3, 23. And so we have to understand that Christ's sufficiency is the only way we obtain salvation. The only way we make it back to God, we can't do it ourselves. And if we can't, and then we go into Christ isn't sufficient, like some people might think, then we're in a really bad spot. Because Christ's sufficiency, his perfection, everything he is, is the foundation of the gospel. And without him, the entire gospel is worthless. And we're hopeless. Amen. But his sufficiency gives us confidence and assurance and hope. Amen. And that's where we come into the necessity of faith. And so, yeah. Julian, when we think about faith, what sets faith apart from just realizing the facts? What is true faith? Yeah, yeah. So we, we need to understand that faith is not just knowing something, understanding something, right? Uh, even the demons believe and tremble. Uh, James 2.19 tells us that. So knowing something does not mean there is faith there, but faith instead is trust in something, right? Right. So um, what are we putting our faith in? We're trusting in the work of Christ. We're trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. We're trusting that that work is sufficient 
for the forgiveness of sin and the justification of, of the believer, right? We trust that Christ has died for the punishment of our sin. Like I said, our trust is in Christ's sufficiency, that when we stand before Almighty God, we may claim Christ as our only source of righteousness before that righteous judge. So faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is necessary for the Christian life because it produces salvation from the wrath of God and it displays good works as evidence. So those good works aren't how we become saved, but it's evidence of our faith. It's, right. That's how we are sanctified is through good works, right? Through right. suffering and good works. I once, I once heard faith explained like this, and it's really helped me. Um, it's like seeing a chair, mm-hmm. and it's a well-built chair, um, and knowledge is looking at that chair and saying, well, I know it'll hold me. Faith would be, I know that chair can hold me, so I'm going to go sit in it. And then you do, and you trust in it. With that being said, with the necessity of faith, we're going to move on into the urgency of eternity. And this is the last point of the key aspects of the gospel, the urgency of eternity. So explain the urgency of salvation in relation to eternity. You are never more than a razor's edge away from eternity. In this life, it's like we are walking on a razor blade and one fall either way, and then boom, we're in eternity. And so this was made uh, very real for our church on Christmas Eve of 2019. We were leaving our candlelight service on Christmas Eve, and it was just like any other day. And a young boy, about 10 years old, uh, was just crossing the street, and he darted out. And a truck hit him head on. And that boy died the next day. And it was in that split second that the urgency of eternity was fully made real to a lot of our church. It made abundantly clear. Because in that split moment, we saw life taken away. And we saw the fallenness of world on full display. Amen. And so we have to be on fire for eternity, we have to be on fire. And really, even going on with that, we see that younger people tend to ignore this urgency of their salvation. And coming out of my teenage years and even a little bit in my 20s, I can see this now, uh, especially after that, that we think we're invincible. Death is not a very close thing to us. Uh, In our society, it seems as if we've made death a very far off concept and we have to realize that death is never more than mere seconds away we have to realize that every second of our life counts for something god doesn't just erase our younger years and say i'll give you that and then you can start living for me in your 30s and 40s no he says your younger years are mine too uh ephesians 12 11, 12 1 tells us to remember god in our youth um and that's so often where we slip up We say we want to experience life now and we'll make it right with God on down the line. But in all reality, as we learned on Christmas Eve, sometimes we're taken in our youth. We're not promised that deathbed. We're not promised that final moment in a nursing home. Instead, we have to turn now. That's the urgency of eternity. Yeah, so with that being said, we're going to move on to our final big point, and that's how we should respond to the gospel. There's three different ways that we should respond to the gospel, and that is through repentance being number one, faith number two, and fruit is number three. So 
I'm going to talk about repentance a little bit. Um, Thomas Watson puts it greatly in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, uh, that there is six special ingredients to repentance. The basic definition for repentance is to turn away from. But we're going to go a little deeper than that. The first step is sight of sin. We need to see our sin for what it is. Namely, like I said earlier, it's cosmic treason against a holy God. It is purely evil. So we need to realize what that sin is. Uh, the second step that we need to see is sorrow of sin. We need to become deeply convicted and saddened because of our sin against a good God. If we do not feel sorrow for our sin, we're most likely not going to do anything about it, right? This is where we become convicted of our sin. This is where conviction comes in. When we become sorrowful, for that sin that we've committed, for that lifestyle that we've lived in objection to God's righteousness. Uh, the third step we need to take in repentance is confession of sin. So we tell our sins before this Almighty Judge. This is a holy venting of sin. This is confession. The fourth point is shame for sin. We become ashamed of our guilt before God. This is like a holy bashfulness. The fifth one is hatred for sin. We become disgusted with, angry with, and saddened by our sin. We become disgusted with how we have offended God. We become disgusted with our sinful nature. And that leads into point number six, a turning from sin. This is a permanent forsaking of a sin, right? This is, I'm turning away from this sin and turning to God. Is a forsaking of sin. As one forsakes a troublesome person, such as a thief, a murderer, or an adulterer, we forsake that sin which leads to death. Right. And that leads into faith. So explain how we should respond in faith to the gospel. Right. So repentance is not, this, this turning from sin, repentance is not just turning from sin to nothingness, but instead repentance is a turning from sin and turning to God and trusting in Christ for salvation. And that's really where we see the gospel kind of come into complete view. And so we trust in this one event, this event that the entire gospel that we've been talking about centers upon, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Much like the Trinity, the gospel has been existent for all of time. And we can really establish our faith on that because it was planned, foretold, and then expressed in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The finished work, the cross, the death, the resurrection, is where everything meets in the crescendo of the gospel. The eternal plan of God is enacted. Man is reconciled to God. God meets his promises. Prophecies are fulfilled. Heaven meets earth. And all of God's characteristics collide on this little hill called Calvary. It's the visible event of the invisible plan of God. And so it becomes this distinct event that we look back to in history. And that's what faith, turning to God and trusting in Christ, looks like for us. It's that complete centering of our lives on this one event, and it's a lifestyle. It's not just a moment, one point in your life, but it is a moment-by-moment moment turning. And that faith goes on to produce something visible. As we look back to something visible, it produces something visible in our lives, which is the fruit 
of our lives, that display of righteousness yes. and faith through obedience. Yes. In Matthew uh, 7, 16 through 20, uh, Jesus tells us that we can know people by their fruits. We can make that discernment to whether they have saving faith or whether they just say they're Christian. So it's that display of righteousness and faith through obedience. Fruit is not what is necessary for us to be saved, but it is an evidence that we are saved. Fruit is necessary in the Christian life because it shows that we are trusting in God through obedience that his law is what is righteous, that his law is what is good, that he is good because ultimately he has established his law. He has told us that it is true. So this fruit is a display of faith through obedience because God is the one who has enacted that law. So we're trusting in God that he ultimately is good and the, he is a source of goodness and of truth. Right. The law is a reflection of the lawmaker's heart. Amen. And ultimately, faith without works is dead, and works without faith is dead. Amen. That brings us to the end of the first episode. And if you've stuck around this long, then <laughs> give yourself a pat on the back. And we thank you for sticking around. In conclusion, we just want to encourage you to turn away from your sin and trust in Christ for salvation. Mm. Because, like we said, eternity is very urgent. And you could enter into eternity tonight. And when you stand before God, what will you claim is your righteousness? Will you claim Christ? Or will you claim your own works, which the Bible tells us are like filthy rags before a holy God? Right. And know that in that consideration, God requires nothing more than filthy rags. The one thing that God demands that you bring to the table the one thing that you need to contribute is the one thing that you have, it's the one thing that I had, and it's the one thing Julian had. And that's a broken, sinful, and dirty heart. And that's what Christ works best with. Amen. And so as we close out, as Julian said, we encourage you, reflect upon the gospel and turn to Christ. Uh, but thank you for sticking around this long. Uh, thank you for listening and this is Colin. This is Julian. And we're signing, signing off. off.